A necromancy divorce and spirit children await us on tonight's episode. These are some of the strange things that happened during Cincinnati's Ouija boom, and we have just the man to tell us about it. Weird history author and journalist, Greg Hand. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another wonderful episode of the Cincinnati Cabinet of Curiosities presents the Hometown Haunts podcast. I am your host, Gak Logo, and along with me in the shadows tonight are Christina Wald and Jen Kohler. Uh, We are an official podcast that can be heard on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, and SoundCloud. Find us by searching Cincinnati Cabinet of Curiosities, and please rate and review us so other spooky and weird history lovers like yourself can find us. Link in the show notes, of course. You can follow us on social media as well at Sin Cabinet Curio on Twitter, at Cincy Cabinet of Curiosities on Instagram. And of course, we're always waited, waiting with bated breath to hear your own hometown haunted mail at hometownhauntedmail at gmail.com. Please send us your weird stories from your own hometowns. Could be weird history, urban legends, creepy cryptids. We love to hear it all. So please send it to us. And also, did you hear? We have a Kickstarter. Christina, do you want to come in and talk about it? Yes, I'm super excited about it. Um, we're at about 80% funded and hopefully far beyond that by the time uh, this airs on Wednesday at midnight. Woo, um, go everyone. Yeah, I know. It's been going really well. Um, and uh, we're, we're doing really well on our sketch tiers. And there's a lot of really awesome... Uh, stuff available through our Kickstarter. In addition to the comic, we have uh, local illustrators did a really nice set of stickers and we revealed the second print today, which was of course based on your Sorg story, which I thought was really cool of the kind of ghostly uh, flapper. Yes, from the Uh, fourth floor ballroom. She was a little bit more horrifying actually than you described her. Yes, but I I let uh, James, who drew it, James Ellison, kind of have more fun with how she was presented mm-hmm. so she's much more kind of skeletal almost like an x-ray which mm-hmm. i pref- i love so like if you see her with the way that i actually witnessed her it mm-hmm. she faded very quickly but she looked um human for a split second mm-hmm. and then just faded out into the mists of time i i don't know but i like how james interpreted my uh, small description that I gave him and then I also sent him a whole bunch of photos of the inside of the ballroom specifically Mm -hmm. when I went to go help clean it up in 2013 so everything is delightful the piano the windows are the windows that you see at the Sorg Opera House so it's it's a wonderful illustration of course if you haven't seen it both him and I believe it was Barry who did Barry Munden did that I yeah. think we're going to put the crosswick snake on the map. I mean, we have two stories about him in the comic and we have this amazing illustration that Barry did. I mean, when I first yes. saw the sketch, it was just like, oh my gosh, this is a wonderful illustration. And yeah, I mean, I want a t-shirt of it or something. It's really a cool Watch design. Watch out, Loveland Frogman. We I got know, the crosswick snake. I think, I think he's got competition um, yeah, for sure. Does. And yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, for those who, if you go to the website, you can see like a little snippet of each story. Um, you know, we have the, and, and you kind of have a little summary here. We have the screaming Brit, 
bridge, Mod Hughes bridge. And then we also have our cryptid support group, which is hilarious. Um, it's very, yes. uh, Steve's style is very reminiscent of Mad Magazine. And so his story cryptids together is really funny. And then of course, our other cryptid story is very scary and very, and kind of makes the, makes the news story much more interesting about the Crosswick snake, doesn't it? It, it's a nice take. It's a Twilight Zone-esque take of the Crosswood Snake. And if you watched last week's episode or listened to it, that would be Aziza and Inky. And that was their mm-hmm. story. So that was wonderful. Yeah. And then, of course, we're talking about the, you know, the story Jeff Cease and I did about the Magic 8-Ball. I think I, I still talk to people. I was playing games Saturday night and talking about how the Magic 8-Ball was was uh designed in cincinnati and they said what i didn't know that and so you know it's history that people didn't know i'm sure actually when greg joins us he might have some additional stuff about the magic eight ball and its invention so i convinced a postal worker that our comic was media mail by telling him the magic eight ball story did you really that was the fancy argument that i had i shouldn't have had that argument but that was the fun little fact that I gave him. Also, other participants in this anthology is the Chillicothe Gazette Ghost, written by Kevin Necessary. And he retold that a few episodes ago, where he saw a ghost in the Chillicothe Gazette building. Um, and then we also have the Ghost of the Sorg Opera House, which I wrote. And uh, that one's partly based off of a true story. It's kind of broken up. It's a tour through the Sorg Opera House, the very haunted Sorg Opera House. And as Christina mentioned, we have a variety of pledge tiers. We have everything from just the digital version and all the way up to buying the actual cover art, the original cover painting for the anthology that David Michael Beck did. So that's all available for you if you follow us on our Kickstarter. Yeah. And David Michael Beck is a Cincinnati institution of illustration. Like he's mm-hmm. done covers for Marvel. He's done covers for he had a huge series of Tales of the Jedi covers. Uh, he did a lot of G.I. Joe covers. I mean, his work is absolutely amazing. And we are so lucky to be able to get him to do a cover for us. Yeah. You recognize it when you see all the other samples. You're like, oh, he's the one that did the Universal Monsters. Exactly. Like, like, yeah. So. Yeah, you recognize a lot of his work if you flip through his portfolio. Moving on to another Cincinnati institution, we have our guest tonight, which I am very thrilled to have. And if you can tell, I kind of flubbed some of my lines because I'm so excited. So tonight, we're happy to welcome to the show fellow lover of the weird history of Cincinnati, Greg Hand. Uh, He is a proprietor of the Cincinnati Curiosities blog. I swear we didn't know that your blog existed when we named ourselves. That's a funny little quinky dink. But he's dedicated to keeping alive the weird soul of the Queen City, just like us. He's a regular contributor to Cincinnati Magazine and WCPO's Cincinnati Lifestyles show. For 36 years, Han provided public relations and communications counsel to the University of Cincinnati after working as a reporter and editor of the Western Hills Press. He is the co-author or editor of four books about the University of Cincinnati and with partners Molly Wellman and Kent Malloy produces stand-up history, bringing entertaining programs about Cincinnati history to saloons and breweries. Welcome to the show, Greg. Happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, I am very excited. I follow your blog since we found it, and I also enjoy the posts that you put on r slash Cincinnati on Reddit. So they find their way there, and I love it. 
Indeed. <laughs> it keeps me yeah. off the streets. It, yeah. It, it, yeah. It, but the streets are fun around here in Cincinnati. Like no matter where you go, there's history, which is why I like living here compared to other places that I lived, which was a cornfield at one time. There's so much history here. And like my house has history. The house next door to it has history. I love that. Indeed. Indeed. In fact, uh, tomorrow morning, I'm leading a class from uh, Gamble Montessori High School down a single street uh, to explain the history of Westwood. Ooh. Because you can tell the history just from things on that one street. Yeah. Ooh, that sounds really neat. That's, that's the way Cincinnati is. It just drips history. And yeah. sometimes weird history. And sometimes weird history. And it's more than just the history of the over the Rhine neighborhood, which I think gets featured a lot. It's very cool. But there's more things outside OTR than just breweries. Oh, so, yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we got weird crime. We got cadaver stealing. But tonight you come to us with some very fun kind of Halloween season spooky stories about the necromancy 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 divorce <laughs> from Sadamsville, our wonderful lovely neighborhood of Sadamsville, which has a really hard rap around here right now with the rectory and all that oh yeah you know every, everybody uh, seems to know about the rectory and 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 points to the rectory and and, and the reports are are quite astounding mm -hmm. um one of the um, one of the things that's always amazed me about Sadamsville is that uh, there there's a there's a whole episode in the past that has not created any ghosts and and when you run into a situation where you think there ought to be some ghosts and there aren't any that becomes weird in itself you know uh, Sadamsville was named for a guy named Cornelius Sedum mm -hmm. who was he was a Revolutionary War veteran he was he came out here. Uh, he was one of the army officers who built Fort Washington um, downtown and, and then acquired this land um, uh, at the foot of the hills uh, in, in Delhi Township and created the little community of, of Sadamsville. But he was very interested in the well-being of his fellow veterans. And so he created a home for old soldiers in Sadamsville, and there, there were dozens of Revolutionary War veterans who lived out their lives in old age in Sadamsville, and, and yet they don't seem to be haunting the place, you know? That's interesting. You know, you know you'd, you'd expect it. You'd, you'd expect yeah. somebody to see somebody in a tri-corner hat or a blue uniform or something marching at moonlight, but you never hear about it. Yeah, that, that's true. People kind of save that for the East Coast, especially New England, seeing yeah. all the colonial. But we did have a colonial group here. I think, don't we have a Revolutionary War Cemetery near Lincoln Airport? Like along uh, there, the trails there, there's there? A very old, there's a very old cemetery uh, in Lincoln Airport. There's another one just around the corner from Harrison's tomb in, in North Bend. A uh, number okay. of Revolutionary War veterans buried there, too. Yeah, because Cincinnati is an old city. Like, it's, what was it, the first true American city established? That's uh, one of its reps, reputations um, established by Americans after America became right. a country. Yeah. So, and, and that's just always astounding to me. I'm like, oh, I guess that would make sense. We're, for, we're 
in enough West Westland to go along the Ohio river to get here, to establish all that. So it, it's just, we do have colonial history. You're right. Though I will say with Sedamsville, it does seem to have a lot of floating ghosts. Like they walk up and down the streets. I always wonder about that too, because they got hit very hard by the 1913 flood. So why aren't oh, yeah. we seeing more flood ghosts, especially all over Ohio? Why aren't there more flood ghosts? But <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, I could see the EC comics uh, swamp ghosts appearing. Yes. Mm-hmm. We, we yeah. should have more of those. Yeah, we really should. And yet we don't. We got the Ohio Grassman and, and Loveland Frogman, and that's about it. So, but we had this interesting necromancy divorce. So that also happened in Sedansville. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the, uh, the story revolves around um, an old German farmer uh, whose name was Lauterbeck, uh, William Lauterbeck. And he was, he was what they called back in the day a truck farmer. And so he had a home out in Sedamsville, and near his home, he had some land, and he would grow vegetables there and put them on a wagon and take them in to Findlay Market or Canal Street Market or any of the, the old markets they had in Cincinnati. And that's, that's, that's how he made his living. And he'd, he'd been married uh, twice. Uh, his, his first wife uh, gave birth to four children, and, and she died soon after the fourth child was born. And he um, remarried. His second wife um, basically raised the four children that, that from, from the first wife. And then she developed cancer and died. Ooh. And so he went and, and married a third time. And the, his third wife uh, was a, um, a woman named Catherine Darby. And uh, Catherine Darby uh, on the marriage license uh, claimed to be 44 years old. When the marriage got into court a little later, she started claiming that she was 39. Um, oh. So, uh, you know, you, you give people mathematical uh, latitude, you know, back yeah. then. Yeah, right? yeah. And uh, Catherine Darby and William Lauterbach had only been married about four months when Mr. Lauterbach went to court and uh, filed for divorce from his relatively new wife on the basis of cruelty. And, you know, he is a gardener. He's out in the garden a lot. He comes in with muddy shoes. And he claimed uh, that, that she told him that he was filthy and dirty and what are you doing in my house and, and uh, threw all of his clothes out of the house and he was so embarrassed he ran out of the house to pick up his clothing off the front lawn and while he was out there she called the police on him for being in the front lawn and disturbing the police and, and that sort of thing. And so eventually this, this case ends up in court and when it does, that's when the spirit world starts entering the picture. Um, mm-hmm. Catherine Darby, uh, Catherine Darby Lauterbeck shows, shows up in, in, in uh, court and she says, William Lauterbeck, this, this humble truck gardener, is in fact a necromancer. He is uh, 
conversing with the spirits. He stays up till all hours of the night, and he is poring over these tomes of ancient and forbidden literature and conversing with spirits and sending these spirits to attack and torment her. Now, I, I don't know where she gets her description of the spirits. You know, they're so different from anything that appears in the horror literature of the time. But uh, they're, they're so different, in fact, that you begin to wonder, well, maybe, maybe this must be true, you know, because they are so different. But one of them is a devil. And this devil or demon is wearing basically uh, gray flannel underwear sort, uh, sorts of stuff. And, and the, uh, the, the, uh, the devil uh, jumps out at her as she's cleaning the rooms and, and he walks around poking her and pecking her and, and uh, caws like a parrot. So he's going, awk, awk, awk. <laughs> so we have a parrot, parrot-voiced demon that is, that is poking Mrs. Louderbeck. And then the other, the other manifestation that is tormenting her is a skeleton. And the skeleton, as she describes it, well, it's a skeleton, you know, your, your basic off-the-shelf skeleton. And this skeleton doesn't really say anything. It just appears and looms around her. And when she tries to lie down in bed, the skeleton is, is bending over her. And so as if these, these spiritual tormentors weren't enough she says this this necromancy this uh dealing with the spirits is in fact how i came to marry this old guy to begin with that that he had a medal or a medallion and that medallion gave him power over me and he entranced me and forced me to marry him so that's how the necromancy works into this uh this divorce story wow and like i i'm just as you're describing especially how the gray devil was described yeah um it the illustration of the cartoon that you have on your tumblr page and it's, it's what is a cincinnati post 1922 yeah. um illustration very 20s because it, it looks like an arthur rackham version of this gray devil because it's wearing the flannel pants it's a long sleeve shirt long sleeve pants and then it has the wonderful what i call peter pan pants because that's how like arthur rackham who illustrated peter pan oh, yeah, did yeah. a lot of the fairies so they're like these little puffy little bloomers that this devil is wearing and it has these tiny little horns and i'm looking at it and like this is the cutest little devil i've seen <laughs> i don't know if i could take the haunting seriously if this thing was showing up and squawking at me so um it but just listening to her or reading her testimonial it was just sitting here going okay so what were you drinking like <laughs> how much like these questions of wondering what her uh, lifestyle was like to come up with these and i also like the skeleton not doing anything but just looming over her it reminds me a lot of um 
oh, like, oh, old hag syndrome or sleep paralysis, what people would describe. Right. It it actually reminds me a lot of that where they'll have visions of demons or devils or other scary imagery just looming over them or out from the corner of their eyes. So I I wondered about that a little bit. But yeah, the 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 old romantic paintings of of the hag perched mm -hmm. on uh, the sleeping person's chest. Yes. Yeah, it's very much like that. And then the, you know, as the, uh, as the testimony uh, goes on, uh, both of them, both the Mr. and Mrs. Lauterbeck accuse each other of misrepresenting their wealth. And so, <laughs> wow. and so, you know, we, we, we get beyond, we get beyond the, uh, the scary, uh, the scary demon and the scary skeleton and everything. And, and, and basically She's saying he married me because he thought I had more money than I had, and and he's saying she keeps accusing me of of holding out on on the money and that sort of thing. And so so now now we get into uh, what you expect to find in a in a divorce court. Now the the newspaper stories at the time don't. They don't go in, get into enough detail on this because I would like to see the transcripts to see if somebody actually tried to call the demon into court, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, you know, like uh, you, you say this demon's following you around all day. Where is he today? You know, can 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 you bring in this material witness <laughs> to <laughs> demonstrate for the co- court what, what what is going on? And, uh, and and so uh, w- without the transcripts, one can only imagine uh, the conversations in the courtroom. You know, the the uh, uh, judge for the, or the counsel for the defense going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Very true. Like, yeah, I can't imagine that defense or even the accusations flew very well in the courtroom back in 1922. Yeah, and the uh, the the uh, the house and the garden, what I assume is the garden uh, that that are mentioned in this story, are still there. Oh they're wow! Still there they're still there in Sedamsville, and and in fact the uh, uh, the address uh, has not changed. So uh, it's uh, six fifty five Delhi Road, and so if you happen to be going through. Uh, through Sedam's life. I forget if Delhi is the one way north or the one way south. Uh, but but yeah, this this house is actually there and there's uh, uh, enough vacant land next to it uh, that I think that must have been Mr. Mr. Lauterbach's uh, garden. Oh, you, yeah. you know, and there's an uh, another reason I wish I would see the transcripts is his defense, Lauterbach's defense is that that he he may have been up at night reading books, but he wasn't reading books about the spirit world. He was reading books about the stars and the planets, and that's the way he described it. He says the the books I was reading were about the stars, the stars and the planets. What I think he was talking about. Remember, this is this is kind of an old, not not very educated um, gardener. He's probably reading an almanac. You know, if, if you were a gardener at, at the time, you would have wanted to know the, the phases of the moon. You would have wanted to know when 
you know, when Mars is in a certain position, that's good for planting beans and and Saturn rising is a good time for your corn planting and that sort of thing. So I, I, th I think he was he was probably reading an almanac. You can buy an old farmer's almanac today and uh, and look through it and, and you get an incredible amount of information on astronomy. And I've 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 purchased my faithfully my old farmer's almanac since 1968 and uh, and use it to kind of predict throughout the next year what's going to happen in the heavens so so i i, yeah. I feel this kind of bond with mr louderback looking through his his uh, his almanac at night yeah not to mention like almanacs and a lot of those um astronomy books also of course they have uh the different star signs and like yep. different yep images or probably even old alchemy images because a lot of what was alchemy yep. also is signs of the planets like what we know as the greek signs of the planets also lend over to alchemy and different metals and uh, materials so probably there was some cross-pollination of like constellation symbols and those alchemy symbols oh, yeah. with things that maybe um darby had seen in like more occult like occult shops ouija boards were right. coming out of popularity but yeah almanacs are uh, uh, what uh, they call it the doctrine of signatures mm -hmm. and 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 almanacs are are almost like guidebooks to the the doctrine of signatures uh where where um things that uh things that connect to venus and things that connect to uh to uh, the sun and things that connect to Mercury and that sort of thing are all based on a variety of symbols. And so the symbol, the alchemical symbols, you're absolutely correct, uh, are just all the way through it. And so an almanac to somebody who's not planting a garden may mm -hmm. look a little bit suspicious, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, you know they always have uh, what what do they call it the uh, the astrological man, where the uh, astronaut uh, astrological symbols point to the different parts of the body that are governed. Yeah, yeah, it, and it's not just Western philosophy that does it. Also, Eastern philosophy will do the same thing. So, and as it turns be out, human. Yeah, as as it turns out. Uh, apparently, the uh, the court was not swayed uh, by demons and skeletons, and so and so Mr. Louderback ended up uh, winning his case. He was he was granted uh, a divorce, uh, a clean break, no alimony, and frankly, that's very very unusual at the time. It it uh, it is almost unheard of for a divorce to take place um without without alimony and so uh whatever whatever he was saying must must have been pretty compelling because despite the um the fact that this is at near the pinnacle of the patriarchy um courts uh were were uh, almost unanimous in ensuring that a woman in a divorce got a substantial settlement and uh -huh. and it's one one of the reasons one of the reasons why a lot of people avoided going uh, to court to to uh, 
uh, for a divorce uh, because that was so often the case that it, it cost uh, the men quite a bit. So this one, uh, that's kind of a, a, a signal that some, something was going on there uh, that, that he would get the kind of ruling that, that he got. And mm -hmm. it, it didn't last long. He, he, <laughs> he got divorced and I think it was what, about three years later, uh, he ended up he ended up dying, and he is now in Spring Grove Cemetery, uh, uh, hopefully uh, at peace uh, next to his second wife. Oh yeah, he, probably more peaceful than his third wife. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it, it though I did notice something. A lot of these strange stories seem to come from the Cincinnati Post. Now, is there a reason why we would get more stories from the Cincinnati Post? They're slightly more oh. eccentric in nature than you the know, Inquirer. You know, I would love to. Um, I would love to develop uh, a better theory on this because um, the, the 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 fact is there's a certain amount of uh, what they call. Um, uh, sample bias in 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 uh, in my blog because I have access uh, to the Inquirer and I have access to the Post. I don't have the same level of access to the Commercial Tribune um, or to the Time Star, uh, and and those other two papers were very active at this time. But based on you know just the two papers that I have. Um, easy access to. I think the issue uh, was the nature of the Cincinnati Post. It was it was a kind of a feisty little paper. It was um, uh, as as uh, one of the co-hosts was was mentioning uh, earlier uh, that 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 the, the same issues showed up in those days as they do today. And it was mostly the post that was fighting the political machine and was fighting uh, the, um, and the, the entrenched rich families of Cincinnati and trying to, uh, to get better conditions for the working class and the poor. And so to get the working class and the poor interested in these political and social issues, they really had to kind of feed the interests of their audience and their audience really liked a juicy story and their audience really liked um, a good rumor and their audience really liked uh, a tall tale. And so if you're going to find this stuff, you're going to find it in the post. The, the inquirer uh, at the time was called the gray old lady of Vine Street. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, and the inquirer kind of lived up to that reputation. It was a, it was a gray old paper and uh, they knew that the moneyed classes were going to be uh, reading them. And so they just didn't truck with this, uh, this low class stuff, whereas the post wallowed in it and, and is a much more intriguing paper as a consequence back in this time period. Oh yeah. It's a lot more fun to read because we've taken a few different stories that we've covered in the past and they tended to be post stories. One of them was them mailing one of their children reporters 
via oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the baby pose that they had it was like what 1912 when they did it or something and he wrote about of his his experience being mailed and then another one was also a girl who it, it, yeah this was also the girl that was mailed the german girl who went through all yeah. of europe and then arrived in cincinnati to work with her sister at one of the local hotels yeah, and those were both post stories. And it was just a trend that I was noticing going, wow, the, the post really, really love their sensational stories. And they're really not afraid to get a little weird with it. And I kind of appreciate that. So it was just and, a and trend that, that, I had those, noticed. Those stories are a reminder that this was not so long ago. I, I wrote about both of those uh, situations on the blog. And uh, the boy reporter who was mailed to Versailles, Indiana, and wrote the column about it. I was contacted by his daughter. Oh, um, so she's she lives uh, up near Dayton. Um, oh, wow, some, someplace. And so, um, the she got in touch with me because he never talked about his career as a boy reporter, <laughs> and and oh, so wow. so she had learned a, a lot of th stuff and passed it on to her children and grandchildren. But you know, this is this is what my dad used to do. Oh, wow. Yeah, it, it, it's just, oh, I actually have another question, just kind of a researcher to the researcher, is how do you find these stories to highlight? Do you just sit there and read through the archives on like a Saturday morning going, gee, what kind of skeletons am I going to find haunting a person today? Uh, there, are, there, there are usually two, two things that happen. Uh, one is I, I have uh, a specific thing uh, that I'm I'm working on. Uh, so like uh, at at the moment, at the moment for a variety of reasons, I'm I'm investigating spittoons. <laughs> so I, I I happened to be on vacation with some friends of mine, and we went into a state house, and we were in the Senate chambers, and somebody says. Uh, the guide said something about back in the days when there used to be spittoons in here. And for me, that meant, when did they get rid of the spittoons? You know? And so I came back from vacation and I, I just started doing a search for spittoons uh, and, and coming up with stuff. Well, each time you find something on the same newspaper page, there's going to be something weird. Is <laughs> is the way it works you know uh you, you you'll you'll find your article or, or you'll find a hit but it's a boring hit or something but then you look next to it and there's an article that's talking about a frog swallowing contest in the west end you know and so and so you know there there there's that that method and then um and then the other is questions come in over the transom um, the, the, the thing that I found interesting is, um, I'm, I'm, I'm old and I did not grow up with, uh, digital media. And so, uh, my, 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 uh, sense of what they used to call netiquette, uh, is kind of primitive. Um, I would, I would like people to get in touch with me because I, I, I enjoy researching for other people. And so I have my email address on, on the front page of my blog, and it, but it's written in such a way that it can't be searched for or copied. Mm -hmm. And I'm amazed at the number of people who 
just can't figure out the code. <laughs> and, so, and so if somebody does figure out the code and, and asks me a question, uh, I, I believe they need some of my time as a reward. And so I'll, I'll get these requests and start looking up their questions. And sometimes they're just absolutely fascinating. I've, I've had any number of blog posts that just come from somebody asking me an off the wall question. Mm-hmm. So oh, that that's a good way though. Cause then you get the community involvement is so important. Yeah. It, it's always been important. It still is with the internet and like, that's where we get a lot of topic suggestions. They're just from people. They're like, hey, yeah. you should look up this. Like we did the cicada episode, not only because cicadas were everywhere, reminding us of their existence 24 seven, but my neighbor was like, did you ever hear this fun little jingle from a pizza place that was a- advertising <laughs> a cicada pizza? And that's what got my interest. And I approached uh Christina and Jenna go, we should do a cicada episode all be in all the weird marketing and how in every single swarm of cicadas, how Cincinnati reacted to them. And it's amazing because every 17 years, it was a different way. They all reacted. Yeah. The, uh, um, some of the early, uh, early, actually some of the early manifestations hardly get mentioned at all. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and I was trying to figure out why that was. And I realized, um, you know, you kind of need trees for, for cicadas. And if you look at, uh, for instance, the very famous daguerreotype um, mural in the uh, uh, Cincinnati Public Library, 1848, there are no trees in mm-hmm. Cincinnati, the, completely bare hills. And so uh, it was right around there. I think 1851 was an emergence, and and you hardly hear a mention of it because there weren't any trees for for the mm-hmm. cicadas to be in. But then when they started coming out again, you know, after the Civil War and that sort of thing, um, the the first round was they were poisonous. Not only were they poisonous, but animals that ate them were poisonous. And and avoid the squirrel pie. Yes. If the squirrels eat the eat the cicadas, you're gonna die. Yes, <laughs> we did and, reference your blog on that one because it was just so alarming to read. Avoid the squirrel pie and the reports of the people and groups that had gotten sickened from squirrel pie. Yeah, I went I went and looked up um, recipes for squirrel pie just to see what the heck they were talking about, and they're almost identical to recipes for chicken pot pie. And so, you know, the old joke about it tastes like chicken. Apparently, that's what apparently squirrels tasted like chicken. Ah, good to know. (laughs) The spirit children. Ah. Oh, man, this was this threw me for so many loops reading through your your discussion about it on your blog. And then again, um, I also went a little bit deeper and was researching more into like, I had no idea who boss was. I'm not from Cincinnati. So I had to do, I do my own little background research to get in with the rest of the culture who has grown up with these stories and these politicians and history. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is getting really strange. And how are we not hearing more about this? So for our listeners, can you talk about the spirit children of, uh, what was it, Lou? Oh, Lou. Lewis Craft. Yes, Lewis Craft. Thank Lewis you. Lewis Craft. Yeah, the, um, yeah, 
back in the day, and this, you know, in Cincinnati, the day would have been about 1880 to about 1920. Uh, the city was run by a Republican machine. And this was rather typical for cities of a certain size in the United States. Uh, New York was run by Tammany Hall. Uh, Philadelphia was run by a machine. Uh, Detroit was run by a machine. Even, even cities, uh, you know, uh, some, uh, Delaware, uh, you know, the capital city in Delaware was run by a machine. So th these political machines were, were rather common uh, in the United States. And essentially what they would do is they would control uh, the city's um, governmental units and uh, governmental units meant expenditures of money, expenditures of tax money, that sort of thing. And there were incredible opportunities for graft and corruption. And, and people got very, very rich off this. So in Cincinnati, Boss Cox, Boss Cox started out as a uh, saloon keeper in the 18th Ward, which would have been to the west of downtown. It's uh, 18th Ward is now almost totally buried by I-75 mm -hmm. uh, going down the west side of Cincinnati. And um, what he was able to do is he was able to deliver the votes. And so uh, when the Republicans were running for office, the 18th Ward would come in in a tidal wave voting for the Republicans. And that was, that was what Boss Cox did. And, and Cox uh, was actually served on city council for a term and then he lost an election. Um, so he, he wasn't a politician himself, but he just controlled all the politicians. And he, um, he uh, made sure that he stayed in power by ensuring that the Democrats, even though he was the rep head of the Republican Party, he made sure that the Democrats got 40%. Mm. So, so the, the uh, Republicans got 60% of the cut of everything, the Democrats got 40%, and the Democrats weren't gonna push because they they figured I'd lose anyway, and if I lose, I'm gonna lose my 40%, you know? And so when Cox moved out of his saloon and into uh, management behind the scenes of the city of Cincinnati, he was replaced by a guy named Lou Kraft. And this is where Mr. Kraft enters the picture. So Lou Kraft was Boss Cox's hand-picked successor at, um, at, a, at a bar that was known as Dead Man's Corner. Just, just I like say, the name. Yeah, this, this, is, this is, you know, just to be clear, this is not the type of bar you go in and order a Manhattan. No, you know, this, this is a shot in a beer uh, saloon. And um, uh, it, was, it was down there in the 18th Ward, Central Avenue, west of downtown. What Lou Kraft was really, really good at was keeping his mouth shut. And so he was in the room, as, as the saying uh, goes now, he, he was in the room when it happened. And he kept his mouth shut. And that was, um, that was what Boss Cox wanted. And so Boss Cox made sure that Lou Kraft did very well. 
uh, Lou Kraft was so circumspect that even his best friends did not know that he was a devoted spiritualist. And uh, Cincinnati, Cincinnati was actually uh, rather a hotbed of spiritualism. Spiritualism as a movement kind of started in the United States around uh, the late 1840s and, uh, and was still going pretty strong into the, into the 1920s, 1930s, that sort of thing. Um, but um, there, spiritualism operated on two different levels. Uh, there, there was kind of society spiritualism. And so a lot of rich families actually attended uh, spiritualist churches. And, and they usually attended them in addition to their mainline Protestant uh, churches on Sunday. So they'd, they'd go to a seance uh, on Saturday night, and they'd, they'd go to the Presbyterian church or the Unitarian church or the Methodist church on, on Sunday. And then there was also uh, the popular spiritualism, which uh, took the form of fortune tellers and spirit mediums and uh, women with crystal balls in uh, parlors with lots of wall hangings and incense burning and that sort of thing. And that's what Lou Kraft uh, was into. And in, in particular, uh, Lou was um, in, uh, completely uh, enraptured by a Newport uh, spirit medium named Jesse Klinger. And at the time, um, Lou's involvement with spiritualism hit the newspapers and there were lawsuits going and that sort of thing. Um, it was so far in the past that, that uh, the evidence is not conclusive, but he may very well have had an actual physical relationship, an actual affair with Jesse Klinger. Uh, who, by, by all reports, was uh, a very lovely-looking uh, spirit medium. But uh, she died. She died young. And, and Kraft uh, was totally heartbroken. He was just demolished. And so uh, the way that you talk to the dead is to find a spirit medium. And so he was now on the search for another spirit medium, to allow him specifically to talk to the spirit of Jesse Klinger, who was now in the beyond and providing advice for him. And most of the spirit mediums that Kraft went to um, wanted uh, their own, uh, they, they wanted their own interests uh, expressed, but he ran into a spirit medium named Plymouth Weeks, which is, just one of the amazing names in Cincinnati history, Plymouth Weeks. Yes, who, I, I love that name. Yeah. I was like, wow, that sounds so bohemian. <laughs> yeah, it just fits Plymouth the Weeks. time perfectly. And Ply Plymouth Weeks was a, approximately uh, Lou Kraft's age. And so uh, as, as he's seeing her, they're, they're both in their late 40s, heading, heading into their 50s. And Plymouth Weeks is... is contacting Jesse Klinger and coming back to Lou Kraft and saying, your departed Jesse Klinger is advising you to do this. 
and and because it was coming from Jesse Klinger, Lou Kraft would do it. And so this went on for uh, investments and buying property and you know a variety of, of business things. And and Lou Kraft is going to this woman so much that Lou Kraft's wife calls up Plymouth Weeks and says, "Stop it! You're you're stealing my husband," you know. And Plymouth Weeks goes, no, 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 I, I, this is purely, purely a business matter. Well, where it, it kind of goes beyond business is one day Plymouth says to Lou Kraft, you know, here's a message from Jesse Klinger from the beyond. Uh, you don't have any children. And, it, and in fact, Lou Kraft and his wife had no children. They'd been married for quite a few years, they were getting on in years, and and he had no children. He was quite devoted to a couple of nephews um, of his, but uh, but he had no children of his own. And Plymouth Week says, you know, Jesse Klinger says that you should have an heir, and Lou's going, fine, fine. How, how, do, uh, how, how do I get this heir? And Plymouth Week says, I'm going to arrange it so that Jesse Klinger will give birth to spirit uh, to a spirit child. Uh, that that your essence and her essence will meet in the spirit world, and she will give birth, and and you will you will have your heir from the spirit realm. And so a little bit later. Uh, Plymouth Weeks shows up and she unwraps a brand new baby and says to Lou Kraft, this is it. Je Je Jesse Klinger has given birth and and here's here's your son. Where did she find this baby? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> it made out of ectoplasm and wishes and hope? Like where did it come from and so this is this gets into uh kind of turning over stones in old cincinnati and seeing what comes out because uh, apparently this child came from what was known as a back then as a maternity hospital and um it was uh it it, it was run by uh, a Dr. Florian, and she um, was, advertised herself as the woman's friend, and uh, the, her ads were all about, you know, if you're pregnant, your family abandons you, blah, 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 come here, come to my hospital, you can stay here completely private, and we'll, we'll help adopt uh, the children, and no, nobody will be the wiser. And, and so, in and of itself, you know, that, that was totally legal. Most of these maternity hospitals were, in fact, uh, abortion clinics. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, of course, abortion was totally illegal uh, at the time uh, in Cincinnati. Um, but uh, these maternity hospitals were set up so that uh, the difference between an abortion and a miscarriage was just totally, totally covered up. And so in this case, um, in this case, Lou uh, gets this baby and uh, he, um, 
he believes it's it's his baby and Plymouth Weeks volunteers to raise the baby. And now we're getting into marital conflict because, you know, Lou now has the son he's always wanted and it's being held by Plymouth Weeks. And so he's calling her all the time and he calls her mama. And so Mrs. Kraft is listening to these conversations going on and she's just being mortified you know she she later testified that she she was so embarrassed that she would just leave the room when these conversations were going on but Kraft was investing so much money in his uh in his spirit child that Plymouth Weeks decides I better go ask Jesse Klinger if maybe Lou might want another kid <laughs> and so and so a couple years later in fact um in fact uh, she does produce a second spirit child and Lou Craft totally buys this you know these are wow. Jesse Klinger's children they have come out of uh out of the spirit world and and these these are my sons and wow. and you know Weirdness was forgiven a lot if you were part of the Boss Cox organization. You know, you could, you could be a little weird uh, all you want. You could claim there's spirit children and everything. Where life got interesting is Lou Craft died. That was and, unexpected. Um, yeah. <laughs> I do wonder, just before we get into him yeah. dying, why didn't he take governorship over the two infants then why did weeks have them well the one can imagine the discussions that he had with mrs craft and and uh you know i'm probably paraphrasing but mrs craft was probably um something along the lines of are you out of your blankety blank mind um spirit children are you kidding me um mm -hmm. who have you been seeing mm -hmm. well, that's a le legitimate question yeah and uh and uh uh no they are not setting foot in this house mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so i i think that sort of thing kind of uh, kind of went on and and probably on the other uh side of things plymouth weeks uh who who from all accounts was no dummy is probably uh realizing that uh if i get the child support payments um i i can ask him for a lot of child support mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, exactly right and so i think that's that's why they're uh hanging out in pleasant ridge at, at plymouth week's house rather than in westwood at at, at lou crayup's house you know so so uh, so Lou dies and mm -hmm. now he's got a will and the will says he 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 leaves a, a a good portion of the estate to his wife he leaves he leaves his wife the house he leaves her uh enough of an annuity that you know she's she's really taken care of for the rest of her life but the bulk of his estate remember this is this is piracy, you know, this is graft corruption. This is uh, 
tax-fattened hog slurping at the public trough. Uh, he's got a lot of money to distribute. So after taking care of his wife, he leaves the bulk of his estate to these two spirit children. Wow. And, and of course, that, that leads to a, um, a rather interesting discussion in court about where did the spirit children come from? Mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 the court is uh, not accepting uh, the, the testimony of Plymouth Weeks uh, that, that they come from the spirit world. <laughs> so the, the court's trying to figure out uh, what the heck is going on. And, and finally, in the, middle, in the middle of the court case, um, the, um, a, a woman shows up and claims to be the natural mother of the first child, of, of, of the first child of, uh, of Lou Jr., Louis Jr. Mm -hmm. And she says, yes, I was, I was in Annie Florian's uh, maternity hospital. I gave birth. Uh, Annie Florian told me she'd adopt out uh, the child. Uh, Plymouth Weeks took the child. I lived with Plymouth Weeks for a couple of years as a nurse to my own child. And when he was weaned, I went back to the country and remarried, but now I would like my son back. And, wow. And she brought with her uh, children that she had with, with, with her new husband. And when you look at the photos, you know, uh, the, the kids have these jug ears and, and her, her new kids and and Lou Kraft Jr. both have the, the same kind of ears. So you think, yeah, there's a little credibility uh, to her story. And it goes on for, uh, I mean, this one, the court case went on for like a year. It was front page news for, for most of a year. And finally, the court said, uh, we have decided that it's totally irrelevant where these kids come from. It's totally irrelevant whether they're Lou Kraft's natural born children, whether they're adopted children, all of that doesn't matter because according to the law, uh, he can name anybody he wants as his heir. And so uh, he didn't do anything illegal. So these kids are, are, are going to be the heirs. Uh, wow. And, and they, they, they got this rather substantial uh, inheritance. And, and the, I feel sorry for the kids, you know, what a weird circumstance to grow up in. But they, they seem to have turned out well for spirit children. Yeah, it, I was reading kind of a follow-up of what happened to them. So what happened to uh, Lewis Jr.? Yeah, Lewis, Lewis Jr. went to um, the Ohio Mechanics Institute and became a kind of a radio uh, electrical technician and had what appears to be a nice, solid, middle-class uh, career. And, uh, and the younger child stayed with uh, Plymouth Weeks um, until right before uh, she died. And, and then he went on to a career uh, as a salesman uh, in Cincinnati. And again, you know, none of them really became rich, but it looks like he had a nice kind of, uh, kind of substantial middle-class uh, existence for the rest of his life. And, yeah. and, and, and the obituaries, th this is what I found interesting. Normally, if somebody's on the front page of the newspaper, it's the first thing that you mention in the obituary. Remember the spirit kid? Well, this is the spirit kid and he died. No, 
you know, uh, both, both, both of these kids died and their obituaries say nothing about their connection to Lou Kraft, Boss Cox, the spirit world, Plymouth Weeks. And, uh, and, and to me, that's, that's a sign that uh, somehow they managed to live a fairly normal life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, I think it was mentioned that Lewis Kraft Jr. was known as Lewis Weeks. Yes. Yeah, so that yeah. that probably helps to separate a lot of right. the identities going on. Wow, th- there's a good possibility that there are uh, descendants of spirit children walking around Cincinnati. It, it could be. It could be. I, I you know, I, uh, I, I didn't follow a genealogical trail, but it's entirely possible. And mm-hmm. who would know? Who would know if you pass somebody on the street? Maybe their, maybe their parent was from the spirit realm. Maybe. Ooh. <laughs> cue music. <laughs> yeah, cue music. That would be that would be a very good use of the um oh. Oh, it just escaped me. The Muller and Scully show. Oh yeah, yeah. X Files music. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. And Scully show. Yeah. So our last topic was just Cincinnati's obsession with Ouija boards. And I this one's briefer than the spirit children one, but still it has a lot of twists and turns. You had people going on scavenger hunts for gold through Indiana, like Southern Indiana. You had people being possessed by the spirit boards. And I also like the take of spirit boards, talking boards and Ouija boards by the more conservative side of Cincinnati where like, no, you shouldn't oh, yeah. be doing these. And like these, it, it reminded me, especially the uh, possession episode with the Chapman family, uh, very much the exorcism, the yeah. movie uh, or the exorcist, uh, just kind of the blowback culturally that you got from people that really did not like spiritualism and using it more as a tool against it. So. Yeah. The, um, uh, the, 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 uh... Chapman episode that you're talking about. One of the things that I found really interesting about this story is that this occurs within weeks of the originators of the Ouija board brand getting their patent. So, mm. so they they had kind of you know the the first prototypes of the Ouija board as a Ouija under that name were made in 1891. They got their patent in 1892, I think in April, and and this is May of 1892. So so you know, depending on where you set your clock, it's within a year, within a month of this brand new thing taking place in Baltimore, and it's already reached Cincinnati, and mm-hmm. and. And, and and it's already actually in this case it's it's reached Liberty, Indiana, which is right out right outside of Cincinnati. But yeah, the the, the Chapmans were uh, totally off their rockers. <laughs> the uh, yeah, they were. The, yeah, maybe <laughs> the neighbors neighbor neighbors are calling some of the authorities. You know, we we haven't seen them in weeks, but there's weird noises coming from the house, and so. Uh, and so uh, a, a bunch of a delegation kind of goes out to the house and they find Mr. and Mrs. Chapman have shredded all of the carpets in their house. They've got, they've got uh, size, uh, you know, grass cutting size and 
gardening tools and they're hacking away at the walls, apparently drawing magic circles. And uh, Mrs. Chapman is claiming to be uh, getting spirit messages from Horace Greeley, the, the, the newspaper editor who's famous for the go west young man, uh, mm -hmm. uh, sort of saying he'd, he'd been dead about 20 years at this time. Mrs. Chapman is convinced that she needs to convert all of America into Masonic lodges and at, at a time when women are not allowed to be Masons, by the way. Right. Uh, and so, and so. <laughs> the Eastern star, I don't think existed quite yet. Yeah. So, so they, uh, they, they, uh, uh, you know, the, the community basic, basically decides, yes, you know, they're, they're totally insane. And the reason they're insane is because they were using this Ouija board. And so that, that was kind of the, uh, the, the first reference in Cincinnati uh, to the Ouija board was these crazy people in Liberty, Indiana, destroying their house. Wow, what an entrance Yes. <laughs> to, to just the market is this Ouija board. It's like this family just went off their rocker, went bananas. Yeah. Uh, and they, they had children, but the children were okay, if I yeah. understood. Yeah. Like, not okay. They watched their parents just chopping away at their house, they, but they weren't physically yeah, and, and in fact, when the neighbors came in and, and were confronting them, uh, you know, uh, the Chapmans bas basically told the community, you know, you get out of here, or we're going to kill the kids, you know, so they were kind of trying to take the kids, kids hostage. So it was, mm -hmm. it was, it was a real effed up situation there. <laughs> so, yeah. So what then, happened to them? Did they get sent to a, like a asylum? And, and this is, this is the interesting uh, thing back then is newspapers would um they would have these amazing headlines and these horrendous stories and then and then it disappears you know yeah and they so, just, it's, it's the same with the crosswick snake you get one mention and then yeah. it, they just drop and, it and and then it disappears you know and so uh trying to find uh for instance uh uh, Chapman is not a totally uncommon name, and so trying to track them in the census records uh, proved to be uh, beyond my scope. Um, I couldn't find any any reference um, in any any papers anywhere about uh, about them ending up in prison or ending up in uh, in an insane asylum. Uh, there, there weren't any insane asylums in Western Indiana, and so if they were, if they were going to be put in an insane asylum, the the options were basically Cincinnati and Columbus, and um, I couldn't find any reference to uh, to that taking place, and and uh, there, there there's there's kind of a uh, a hint in some of these cases that maybe they got key parts of the story wrong. And just mm. shut up, you know, to yeah, uh, not have to explain how they got it wrong. But uh, but yeah, th this one was so specific that uh, uh, you, you figure there had to be something, something involved in it. Mm -hmm. 
It, it could have just been a domestic dispute or something, and they just happened to have gotten the Ouija yeah. board, and somebody just threw, yeah. pieced it together oddly. So, yeah, it, and then not too far. I don't know how far away. Yeah, it is. not Harrison, too far away. Yeah, Harrison, Ohio. Now, now we the, had. I I I I confess I spent at least two days trying to locate Whistletown, Indiana. The, uh, the, the, uh, they, they describe Whistletown, Indiana uh, as being a little bit uh, outside Harrison. And um, I, I was unable to find it. So it must have been one of these, one of these little farming communities that just kind of got swallowed up uh, by agriculture over the years. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yes, a prominent citizen and a prominent gentleman, and they, they don't describe him by name, is sitting down with his, uh, his Ouija board and uh, gets a message that there's treasure buried in Southgate, Indiana. And so if, you, uh, if you're driving out I-74, a little bit after the Brookville exit, there's a, a St. Leon exit. And if you head north on that exit, you ultimately go through what used to be the town of Southgate. And apparently he was able to convince 50 people from this Whistletown, Indiana. So it must not have been a microscopic town. You know, it had mm-hmm. at, least, at least 50 guys with the spare time to go marching out with gardening implements to Southgate, Indiana. And uh, at the time the news story appeared, They'd been spending three days digging up Southgate, Indiana, trying to find buried treasure. <laughs> so you can only imagine the residents of Southgate, Indiana. What in the hell are you guys doing in my backyard? <laughs> exactly. Oh, Ouija, we, Ouija told me to be here. What? Because <laughs> <laughs> again, this is this is 1894. So this is within just a couple of years of, of this thing being invented and produced and distributed uh, in the United States. Yeah. And, and, and somehow it gets out to uh, the remote corners of rural uh, Indiana and inspire, <laughs> inspires people to dig up a neighboring town. Yeah. And, did, and probably just like with the Chapman, did, was there any follow-up on what happened? Yeah. And, and and you can't find, uh, you know, I, if there was a newspaper for Southgate, Indiana, I don't think it's been digitized. So I, I did yeah. spend some time looking through uh, Indiana newspapers, uh, trying to find out uh, any any report about this and found no follow up at all. Huh. So the yeah. uh, I, I know. Um, uh, there, there's a local in Cincinnati. There's a local fossil collecting group, and uh, one of their prime collecting sites is in what used to be Southgate, Indiana. So, so maybe maybe the tradition is continuing with people showing up to collect fossils. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, I could see that with the glacier movement and all that. So, yeah. Wow, those it's just and then. Also, you mentioned it earlier, seances were very popular and spiritualism in general was just very popular here in Cincinnati. Yeah, the, the, um, and the, the surprising thing about a thing like the Ouija board is 
you would think, well, in fact, you know, and re religions, standardized religions, mainstream religions are always condemning Ouija boards as examples of spiritualism. And yet some of the major opponents of Ouija boards were in fact the spiritualists. Uh, the, the idea that their religion, that they had fought for decades to build some credibility and some respectability was now being reduced to a parlor game was was absolutely horrendous as far as they were concerned and so and so a lot of the um a lot of the the spiritualists were were totally anti anti Ouija boards what was one of the uh one of one of the spiritualists says uh, inference that the Ouija board is controlled by spirits was resented by the delegates at a spiritualist convention and the uh, discussion today developed strong possibilities of a nationwide movement to put down what one speaker referred to as the slander against our religion represented by, by the Ouija boards. And so the, uh, uh, what they had considered a very sacred uh, sort of channel of communication opening up into into this realm was being cheapened into a parlor game where you just talked into any talk to any wandering spirit who happened to come by. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I love the I, what immediately comes to mind is the Norman Rockwell painting. Yes, that the cover for uh, was it the New York Post with the people doing uh, the Ouija board session, but you also mentioned some other cartoonists that now, were local before, that did it. Yeah, be, before you leave Norman Rockwell, though, uh, yeah. th this is a dimension that I, I have not found evidence that people objected to the Ouija board on moral grounds. They've objected to them on spiritual grounds, but I've yet to come across somebody who objects to them on moral grounds. And that painting that you're talking about shows two young people uh, in apparently a, a middle-class parlor with a Ouija board on their knees. And the important thing, and this is in the 1920s that Rockwell painted this, their knees are touching. Mm -hmm. Okay, that was immoral behavior in the 1920s. You did not sit so close to uh, someone of the opposite sex that your knees touched. And to operate a Ouija board, this was an excuse to get that close uh, to somebody. And so I, I've expected to see these moral authorities coming out and saying, yes, you know, the, the, the Ouija board is leading you into uh, all, all sorts of depravity and sexual uh, license, et cetera, et cetera. And, it, and it's just not there. And that, that surprises the heck out of me. Yeah, that is true. That is a point that I hadn't thought of before. You're right. Yeah, the, uh, there, there are, um, uh, there, the, morals were so different uh, back in the day. You know, uh, I, I grew up, uh, when Henny Youngman was still appearing on television, and he'd always start out with the same damn joke. You know, who was that woman I saw you with last night? That was no woman, that was my wife. You know, and and the, the, the implication 
is that uh, that that uh, that 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 uh, you're, you're suggesting that my wife is um, of of a different moral class, you know. And in fact, that was the case because, you know, back in the day, dating did not exist. And so if you were seen out in public with somebody, you were either married to that person or this was a, a commercial exchange. Ah, right, right. right. And so, and so uh, a lot of times when you're doing this research on the past, you have, you have to kind of put yourself in the uh, mindset of the of the people at the time they they were offended by things that today we don't even give a thought to you know people sitting together with their knees touching i mean right. really <laughs> they never been to a coffee house type of thing exactly and then there was also the bohemian uh lifestyle that was really popular we talked about it a little bit with um Oh, Christina will remember better because she has a better memory than I do. The woman who illustrated all the tarot cards in the oh, Smith yeah, deck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that and that culture, and that was in England, but that was also running kind of she was quite a little bit younger that I think that was the early 1910s, but you're running into that count that culture underneath happening with now, like the now, now you're, you're getting in you're getting into something that maybe we should explore in a future show yeah that's uh, a good but 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 there there is a tarot deck out there that was uh developed by a cincinnati artist and if you start uh lifting that rock and seeing what's underneath um a lot of the founders of the cincinnati art museum and the Cincinnati Art Academy were theosophists, which were like practicing magicians and necromancers and and that sort of thing. And there were so many theosophists uh, in the city of Cincinnati that um, they they had their world convention here. Wow. And, and, and so uh, so yeah yeah the. Uh, uh, oh, blanking on the guy's name right now, but he, he went off, um, uh, he went off to uh, California and became a um, set designer for the silent movies, but, but had done a, uh, um, a tarot deck that uh, actually goes for a pretty penny now, if you can find a copy. Okay. Well, we, we should have you back on just to talk about that. Cause that sounds That's like a really excellent <laughs> just topic just diving into that but for now i'll have christina and jen join us back on the show because i'm sure there are questions to be had by both of them oh yeah we have a lot of questions <laughs> <laughs> but you, you me. I, I mean i really would love to hear more about the i mean art, especially because this this podcast talks about comics a lot and art and that sort of thing so knowing about the theosophy uh you know behind the art museum and the art academy which might explain a little bit about why they were in the same building for so long too oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. save Debbie, it for uh, the next episode yeah yeah, yeah well definitely <laughs> you know and it, it's one thing that was interesting talking about the ouija board is um it seems like uh there was a patent on it so it, that patent has to be over now right or does 
Like, how does that work? Because one thing I've noticed with tarot decks, and maybe it's because they're very art heavy. Like I know so many artists and we had one on that have made their own tarot decks now, um, but you don't see as much redesign of Ouija boards. And I wonder why that is. Ouija might be trademarked. Yes. Um... I, I, I need to remind people that my law degree got lost in the mail, but, uh, but the, uh, um, yeah, the, uh, there, there were some patents um, on the Ouija board. And in fact, there was a famous story that uh, uh, some of the early um, uh, designers of, of the Ouija board went to the patent office and they were not going to give them a patent uh, unless they proved that it worked. And the patent officer said to uh, to, to the attorney, and uh, he, he brought his sister-in-law, who was a medium, with him. Uh, he said, uh, if that board can tell you what my name is, I'll grant the patent, uh, assuming that they had no idea what his name was. And the medium sat down, do-do-do-do-do, and spelled out his name. And wow. so they, they issued the patent. But the, um, yes, the, the patent... By now is is long 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 past. What what has to be keeping this going is um, the trademark um, and uh, and and the copyright information on the design. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah. Parker Brothers has it. It's one of the. I thought it was. I mean, everybody's owned by the same people anymore. Yeah, the, so it's the, really sale, hard to... the sale. <laughs> yeah, the sale in '67 was to Parker Brothers. Yeah, which and, is owned by Milton Bradley now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that yeah, was so part it, of the it, Hasbro it was, acquisition. It was in the Fold family up until 1967. Then it went to Parker Brothers. Mm-hmm. And that yes. was part and of then, Kenner. And Kenner was bought by... Yeah. And they made a Hello Kitty one. And I know there's a girly glow-in-the-dark Ouija board. Oh, you're kidding. I remember... Oh, no. They... Uh, like, there are designs. There are different designs. But if you want... Um, more personal designs look for talking boards like on etsy and stuff now Um, wouldn't that be horrible if you've got a hello kitty ouija board and you summon a demon what kind of demon are you going to get are you going well you're going to get one one wearing yes the pink flannel pajamas and in the (laughs) puffy pants maybe with bows okay on the horns Maybe and maybe less. instead of squeaking, it will meow at you. There you, <laughs> you know, uh, you're, you're talking about the newspapers in Cincinnati made, made me think about and how sensationally they, they how sensational their headlines were. Uh, was it Hearst that got in trouble? Who was the newspaper for, for his sensational stories? And I mean, a lot of the stuff we complain about with cable news now they were complaining about the newspapers then for the same thing, weren't they? Yeah, uh, they they were. I would I would suggest that they did not get in trouble. Um, I, I mean, they they became controversial, but but they intended uh, to do that. You know, the uh, um, uh, I, I think Hearst is famous for saying something about the Spanish American War about. Uh, you know, you give me the stories and I'll make sure there's a war, uh, essentially. And so, uh, uh, so yeah, this, this was their bread and butter was, was getting yelled at. The more they got yelled at, the better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and it just it just it's a different delivery system but really it wasn't that different so when you hear about these wacky stories that were in the paper i mean the same thing happens now with viral videos and oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah and there there was their own form of virality uh back then the uh newspapers would would just steal stuff from other newspapers and so <laughs> and so uh one of the things that I've learned doing research is if, if, if you're working with the Cincinnati newspaper and they've got a, a bad print and you can't make out the story, just search for a key term and the, a, a newspaper in Arkansas would have printed the same story and just stolen it. You know? Really? So it wasn't, even, it wasn't even that they bought it. It was that they actually stole it. They just clipped. Yeah, they just clipped it out. <laughs> mm -hmm. the, 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 um, and and uh, they considered it part of the journalistic tradition. They were called exchanges, <laughs> and 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 most newspapers had what they called an exchange editor, and the exchange editor just subscribed to other newspapers and clipped stuff out that they liked. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I, huh. I mean I mean that's just really interesting how, uh, and and hearing about the spirit children and stuff was kind of exciting too the the whole show i mean i'm sure there were all sorts of and this probably plays into this i know in my own family like i've heard stories of where people would falsify birth certificates and death certificates uh because they didn't want things to tar i don't want to say tarnish the family name but like the the lengths they would go to like if somebody had an illegitimate child like the stories that it was always, I mean, the stories they made up to explain why somebody had some kid were almost that crazy, you know, oh, it was oh. a spirit child, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I, 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 I remember one story and I, I'm sure some family member can clarify it. Um, my uh, great aunt had a child before she got married and her husband adopted the child. And apparently my grandmother had some really wild story to describe something that was just as simple as the kid was born out of wedlock with somebody else. Right. <laughs> and people yeah, just I've, did I've, that. I've, I've got one of those, at least one of those up my tree. Oh and, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and I was, I knew somebody I, who I've never met was was following that branch of the family, and I wrote her an email and said, "What about this kid?" Boom! <laughs> the, cur the curtain fell. Nose. <laughs> I was cut off. <laughs> I'm oh, wow. sure. I'm sure every family has these stories. I mean, how could yeah. you not? I mean, right. you know, and people probably were always, you know, perhaps even explaining a spiritual sort of thing happening was a lot better than just saying I was out having fun with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. The, 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 the I, I guess you could say lies people tell, but I mean, you know, back then it, it seems like it was probably a little bit harder to disprove things. Yeah. Even if it was pretty yeah, wild. We, we, we have lost the, um, we have lost the tradition of the polite lie. Yes. Yes. Um, like I, it used to be like, for example, like death certificates, when people died of cancer, they didn't say that's what it was. They would right. like call it something else because it was almost like a tarnish kind of thing. And I find that really fascinating um, when you read like historical stuff and what's, I guess that's where the skeletons in the closet thing came from. Right. Absolutely. Oh, I just thought and, that in was some just cases, the cadaver tree. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in some cases, they were literally skeletons in the closet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's and and um, you know, I it's 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 a, just an interesting concept. You know how as we just talked before we came on how uh, things really never change and and people there's this tendency when you're living through an era to say oh this is the worst things have ever been and maybe it is for you but if you do search back into history it's like well it's not really that bad at all <laughs> compared to what people used oh. to deal with or you know strange things that happened or unexplained things that happened um it's nothing if mm -hmm. if if i had my choice between covid and modern medicine and cholera with no antibiotics i'd take covid in a heartbeat oh yeah i mean that was Ooh. that was a and, and that was a uh we, we did a show about that that was a pandemic in the 1800s that cincinnati yeah. didn't do much about did they i mean what what could you do well i suppose there was, I mean, the, uh, we filled in the canals and that was the best we got yeah yeah the oh, yeah. uh yeah wash yeah, your the, hands yeah <laughs> well they didn't it's, know yeah. to do that back then I know. <laughs> no they, yeah. they they didn't they know. didn't oh that just reminds me of typhoid mary and that <laughs> entire thing well, you know that, that you know uh when did sanitation kind of take hold because we were i was actually talking to a friend that teaches american history about uh, you know, was there resistance to having things like sewers because that has added many years because of cholera and dysentery that's added so many years to people's lives. And well, she you, said there was people were like, I can't believe you want us to pay for sewers. Yeah, you um, you've undoubtedly heard about the demolition of the Kenyan bar district in the West End, right? No, um, no. Uh, uh, Kenyon Bar was a, a name invented by the city to describe a portion of the West End that the city was going to take over and demolish back in the uh, 1950s. And um, they're, they're, they, they documented the area before they demolished it. And so there's thousands of photos of the West End, the Southern West End, um, at the um, museum center before they demolished the building. So anyway, um, they've, they've had a couple of exhibits recently of what Kenyon Bar used to look like and what's there now, which is basically light industry and warehouses and that sort of thing. And some of the residents came there uh, to the exhibit and I was talking to some of them. And what I managed to piece together is this entire neighborhood was demolished because this is the 1950s. None of them had indoor plumbing. Wow. This is like thousands of occupied housing units in the 1950s with no indoor plumbing. Is this the exhibit where we had all the artifacts from the outhouses on display? uh this one i don't know if they had exhibits from the outhouses but the museum center does have an ex or had an exhibit from the yeah. outhouses. yeah it, it was remarkable because like living in all these historic homes yeah like um it, <laughs> if they're built be before a certain time there is an area of your yard that is a clear 
that's yep. where the outhouse was. And um, some places that's where your biological waste pit was. And uh, yeah, and I like to remind all my neighbors of the morbid history of some <laughs> of Cincinnati. <laughs> so it was just easier for them to tear down the whole neighborhood and start from scratch. Yeah. So Rather what than... happened to all the people? Well, um, the, the short answer is the city partic in particular didn't care because they were all black, you know, so oh. what the hell. But, um, but this would have um, created an, an exodus that would have, uh, it would have populated parts of Avondale and uh, the northern part of the West End and um, over the Rhine. Um, during the uh, during the fifties, uh, but yeah, basically they just moved everybody out. Well, isn't that kind of what they did in Cincinnati and Detroit? They destroyed a lot of uh, black communities to build the highway. Didn't yeah. they tear mm -hmm. down a lot of their uh, like communities and uh, areas? Yeah, neighborhoods. Where they lived? Yeah, neighborhoods. Yeah, the um, uh, back back uh, back when I was younger and participating in in demonstrations. Uh, that was one of the chants was uh, urban renewal is black people removal. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that's really what it was is they would just identify uh, a neighborhood and, and they would claim it was because of the condition of the buildings and all that. And really it was because of the concentration of black residents and just market for demolition. Mm -hmm. And, and of course these are all absentee landlords. And so um, forcing the, the landlords to, um, upgrade their housing to meet code was just out of the question because they weren't going to do it. Mm -hmm. Man, yeah. that's it's very sad. I mean, because it destroyed a lot of families and um, yeah. you know took away whatever they had of value. Um, but the um, the the hilltop neighborhoods um, when they were annexed by Cincinnati, so um, oh. Um, North side would have been like around 1909. Westwood was 1896. I think Clifton was 1896. When those um, hilltop neighborhoods came into the city, one of their requirements was put sewers in. Oh, nice. And so, and so you can pretty much date the demise of the outhouse from the time that those neighborhoods were annexed to the city of Cincinnati. Well, it's interesting because I live in Green Township, and when we moved to our house, they told us our house was on the city sewer, but it was not. We were on septic, um, and it was like a little oasis of, like, uh, and apparently there's a lot of areas like this in Cincinnati, like all the houses around us, you know, were on sep or uh, were on city water, and then there's like these these neighborhoods that are not. So we are now on city water or city septic, but, or sorry, city sewer, but we weren't when we first moved here. I grew, How up, long? Um, I grew up on Belclair Road in Dent uh -huh. uh, mm -hmm. with, with a septic tank in the backyard. Mm -hmm. and yeah, and it, it produced beautiful tomatoes every year. <laughs> <laughs> well, what got us on what made us finally be able to get on the city sewer was they built a housing development between our, like our house was built in the thirties and they built a housing development behind our street. Um, like in the early 
probably in the 90s and um all of our houses were on septic and our sewage was going into this new fancy Dries development's backyards which oh. kind of annoyed the residents they didn't really you know like having sewage in their back it's odd how people don't like that yeah <laughs> yep so so now Funny we're on that. city sewer so um and and you know one of the big problems with like a lot of older communities is, is the sewer system needs to be updated and it's super expensive to update it. Like I've heard Marimont and areas like that, like Oh Hyde Park, every single time it rains, everyone's basements flood with sewage. Exactly. Eww. Yeah. In parts of Oakley. It's a mm-hmm. hard sell to redo all those systems because it costs so much. Like I yeah. think uh, we have it added to our water bill. Like I forget how much it yeah, is. Yeah, the month um, to... the uh, Cincinnati um uh water water and sewage system is under federal orders to remediate all the sewers in the service area which is basically includes all of hamilton county so all this construction that you're seeing if you live in green township you've no doubt driven through um lick run mm-hmm. where they've they've restored the creek uh in lick run that's all part of this i, I think it's a two billion dollar project countywide it, w- it wouldn't yeah. surprise me which actually is a good yeah. segue into comics because our friend jay does a comic about that takes place in the city sewers oh yeah <laughs> messed <laughs> yes which msd yes <laughs> have you ever done uh windsor mckay we should do a thing on him since was he from cincinnati or just ohio i know he's, he did he a spent, cartoon uh, for the cincinnati inquirer yeah, he spent 10 years here before he went off to New York and became famous. He was um, actually, if you go to, and this is a reason to go to the Billy Ireland Museum, they have a collection of Gertie the Dinosaur there, like we right. saw some original selves, and they actually were able to get some of those old Cincinnati Enquirer comics that he did. They got a call from some woman that found them in her attic, and she was like, I wonder if these, and they authenticated them. And she was able to sell each page for like $40,000 each. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ooh. I mean, she donated some to the museum because, you know, but. Right. <laughs> well, there's yeah. her retirement. <laughs> yep. and, uh, we could probably talk to you forever, but we probably should wrap up so we don't have a three-hour program. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, it was great really having you on. on. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, I, I just love talking to other people that are into weird history and sharing it with the masses. It, it's just such a unique way of identifying Cincinnati. Like, it, that's why I love it. it. It's a wonderful adoptive town of mine. And, <laughs> and Jen's too, because Jen's not originally yeah. from here either. No, I'm not. Grew up in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think I think it is because Cincinnati used to be such a, I mean, a lot more influential than it is now, like in a previous yeah. era. What do you mean the Bengals aren't influential? <laughs> well, there was a time when Cincinnati had like more, what would you say, sway than it does now. Yeah, at one time yeah. this was the sixth largest city in the United States. Yeah, but I mean, wow, you know, we, we have we have not been a top ten city for a long time. Uh-huh. Uh, can we keep it that way i like cincinnati and it's kind of closeness the close knit you know it really is a small city in a lot of ways and i don't want it i don't want more people in it that's what i'm saying <laughs> we have enough 
you know, uh, uh, along those lines, uh, when I was working at UC, um, one of the deans of the law school, uh, I was having a conversation. I mentioned something about Cincinnati being a small town. And he said, no, no, Cincinnati is not a small town, but it is intimate. That's a good way of putting it. That is a very good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah it kind of reminds me of the Seattle of the Midwest where mm -hmm. like people get their careers started here in like the underground scenes and then move out to larger cities and become more well-known kind mm -hmm. of just like in Seattle with mu the music scene. So yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, on that well, note. Yes. Thank you for <laughs> joining us, Greg. Um, can you give our listeners where they can find you on the internet? Yeah. The, um, there is a, a URL, but the easiest way to find me is if you Google Cincinnati Curiosities, you'll find me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. I believe you do pop up before we do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> before the anthology does, I should really say. Um, and ooh, yeah. And that was just weird. I, we did not know each other when we named our things at Cincinnati Curiosities. So. Yeah, and, well, we yeah have to I love again. Yeah, yes. and you also write for Cincinnati Magazine, correct? So you yes. once in a while you get uh, mm -hmm. articles in that, and then also you do the wonderful Tumblr, where if you want to know anything interesting about Cincinnati, it's found on his page. It's great. I love reading through it, and it has. I love your today in history segments and all of that. So. Learned I'm so glad much. I'm not doing that anymore. I, I did that on a dare to myself uh, to do an entire year of today in Cincinnati history. And I was exhausted by the end of one year. So I can <laughs> I see that. Yeah. yeah, but it was great reading while it was around. So for everyone, uh, I got to just zoom up here. You can follow us on Twitter at Sin Cabinet Curio and on Instagram at Cincy Cabinet of Curiosities. And we also love to hear your own hometown stories about the weird and wonderful. So email those to hometownhauntedmail at gmail.com. I'm Kat Cloco. We got Christina and Jen. Thank you for joining us this week. Good night and stay weird. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.